Uh, this morning we are launching a new series. If you've seen uh, <clears throat> some of the advertising and such over the past weeks, uh, we've been mentioning this. And in fact, we do have a little business card that's meant to be invitation. Once again, thank you for those who uh, invited folks over our special Easter weekend and, and Black Friday, uh, Black Sunday rather, and so on, movie and all those different things. Um, and I know some did, and folks weren't able to come. And that's wonderful. Just keep doing it. But uh, we do have these little business cards. You can pick one up at any of the doors when you leave this morning. You can take one or two. You can take ten if you'll use them. But uh, this card is, uh, announces the series. It's called Say What? And on the back, we have three topics that we are dealing with that really are, we feel, relevant topics today. Uh, questions sometimes that you're asked as believers or, or comments you'll hear sometimes in form of a question uh, in our culture today. And you may wonder, well, how do I answer that? What does the Bible say about that? And uh, so I'm going to begin with the third one. Uh, we have three starting today. Uh, the third one is going to be on May 7th, and the topic on May 7th is the Bible and same-sex attraction, a very relevant topic, and we're going to have with us our Assistant General Superintendent, Pastor David Hazard, and uh, he uh, just does a wonderful teaching on this topic. Uh, he'll share more when he comes, so he's going to be our speaker in the morning, but <clears throat> following the morning service, we'll take a short break to kind of get things set up, but by 1230 we'll enter into a Q&A time in the gym for those who would like to stick around. So you don't have to go to that by any means. You're here for the service. If that's, if that's all you want to receive, that's wonderful. But some folks, you know, this, this topic may be close to home. You may have some questions. You may want to dig a little deeper. And so uh, Pastor Dave is going to stick around with us for the afternoon from 1230 to 230. Uh, he'll be in the gym. And we're going to have a, little, a light luncheon served. And then we'll have just uh, some Q&A, maybe some things from the message, and maybe a couple more things he will share or elaborate on. But it's just going to be a couple hours. And again, you can come and go during that two-hour period. If you want to stay for the two, you can. I'm sure you'll find it fascinating. But what I would ask is we do have clipboards, I believe, on the front of each pew. And I think one right beside you, Denise, wonderful guys over here in front of Dale. <clears throat> if, you, if you want to join us for the luncheon, uh, please do sign up for that. Now, it doesn't obligate you. If something comes up and changes, that's no problem. We just want to get an idea, of course, how many prepare for. We'll just have something light, some sub-sandwiches or something like that, um, and uh, we'll make preparations for that. So if you're uh, thinking about you'd like to join us for the luncheon, that's in two weeks' time, May 7th, uh, please just let us know on that clipboard, and the balcony should have them as well. Uh, and again, uh, please uh, grab some of these cards on your way out. We want to continue to invite people uh, for these discussions. Next Sunday, we're going to talk on the subject of hell uh, as a creation of God's love, which might seem like a, st a strange thing to say, but it's really in response to the common question you'll hear is, how can a loving God send anybody to hell? You ever heard that one? Very rational question. I would ask it myself if I wasn't a believer, but we're going to deal with that next Sunday. Uh, this Sunday morning, or this morning rather, uh, we are considering the question, aren't all religions the same? Don't basically all religions lead to the same God in one form or another? How many of you have ever seen this uh, bumper sticker? It's called the Coexist bumper sticker. Anybody ever see that? <clears throat> You'll see the bumper sticker form. Uh, basically what it is is the word coexist made up of uh, different symbols from different religions. And you'll see different variations of that on bumper stickers. I think I've seen them more so when I've been down in the States. But uh, they're, they're kind of increasingly popular. And basically I think what that, what that bumper sticker is asking is why don't the major world religions just stop focusing on all their differences and why don't they just get along? And what that presupposes is this other notion that after all, all religions of the world have equal truth. But the question for us this morning is, is that statement actually true? 
If I'm going to believe that statement, then I've got to be able to prove that is the fact. Well, uh, let me give you a couple examples that would maybe kind of speak against that. Uh, in, in the religions of Hinduism and Buddhism um, and other Eastern religions, every, other varieties of that, for example, there is not a belief in a personal God. Uh, but when you come to the faith of, uh, say, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, it very much believes that there is a personal God. Uh, in, the, in the religion of Islam, for example, the teaching is that God did, uh, Jesus did not die on the cross, that God created an imposter kind of thing, a substitute for him. Jesus uh, walked away free, continued to live, and uh, this other person died in Jesus' place, whereas Christians believe that Jesus, in fact, did die on the cross, and he rose again from the dead to make atonement for our sin. Now, the issue is, in any of these matters, either both those belief systems are wrong, or one of them is right and one of them is wrong, but the fact is you can't, they, they can't be equally true. Does that make sense? If they are describing two different realities, well, they can't both be true. They're either both wrong or one is right and one is wrong. And then, of course, in Judaism, there's the belief that Jesus was just a good rabbi, and Christianity, of course, we believe that Jesus is God. And so just even a very superficial examination of world religions reveals that they are at odds with one another on some very key issues. That is, they claim certain things to be true, which if they are true, means that the claims of other religions in that particular area are going to be untrue. Now, what I want to focus on this morning, because it really is such a vast topic, there's so much you could talk about, I'm just going to be kind of going over quickly on some various religious teachings. But amidst all the fundamental differences that religions have, and really only have, at best, some very superficial similarities, in the midst of all the differences, there is one belief that all world religions hold in common. And that is the basic belief that there is something inherently wrong in the human heart that needs to be fixed. There is a problem uh, with human beings that needs to somehow find a remedy, whether you're a Christian, a Buddhist, Islam, uh, Muslim, Jew, Jew, it doesn't matter. They all have that fundamental belief. And so what each religion sets out to do quite sincerely is try to find a remedy for that problem. They try to, through a variety of rituals or, or, or nutritional regimes or practices, whatever it may be, every religion fundamentally tries to set out and find a way for their followers to find freedom from this problem. And yet the reality is, in the midst of all religions, as sincere as they may be, most of them have no ultimate answer to the problem. And that's what we're going to kind of focus on here this morning. Now, within the religions of Judaism, Christianity, Islam, what you do have is a fundamental agreement that this problem is called sin. And there's a variety of lists of what those things might be referred to as sin. We'll come back to that in a few moments. But I want to begin this morning with Buddhism. <clears throat> And again, anything I say this morning, it's not in great depth. You can do more investigation yourself. Is to give us uh, basically a basic understanding on this particular point that we're talking about. But anything I say this morning is not in any way to disrespect or slight another uh, religious belief and certainly sincere people who follow that. But, uh, but looking at Buddhism, Buddhism uh, basically as their goal is nirvana. Now, nirvana is not the 80s rock group with Kurt Cobain, for those of you who you know, kind of my age, okay? That's not the nirvana we're talking about. We're talking about nirvana as a place, a final place of escape that, that ends this endless cycle of struggle and suffering and then rebirth. And that, that struggle, that cycle, is known as samsara. 
samsara. We have the word up there for you. So nirvana is basically the goal is to find this final uh, freedom from or absence of samsara. And so in the religion of Buddhism, what you have actually as a focus is not so much actually reaching something as getting rid of things. And so you want to get rid of this samsara. You want to get rid of this suffering, of the struggles, all those kind of things that, that come for a certain reason, as we'll see in a moment. You want to kind of get rid of those things. But what's interesting in Hinduism, it still recognizes that there is this inherent problem that needs to be fixed in the human heart. Uh, now, the word samsara kind of refers to just that daily flow of life. And in that daily flow of life, you have this mixture, of course, of desires and emotions and experiences. And all of these things in life obviously bring a certain measure of struggle and sometimes even, even suffering. So when the Buddhists talk about being free from suffering, they're talking about being free from these things that are the result of samsara. Now, Buddha taught what was called the Four Noble Truths. The second of the Four Noble Truths, according to Buddhism, is this that the origin of suffering is desire. The origin of suffering is desire. So the way that you end suffering is you end desire. Now that might sound like kind of a silly thing, but there is kind of an element of truth in that because if human desire is always selfish, if it's always evil in a sense, oftentimes, well, of course, that desire brings an element of suffering and destruction as we see around the, world, around the world today. In the teachings of Buddha, this is written. This is the noble truth of the origin of suffering. It is this craving which leads to renewed existence, accompanied by delight and lust, seeking delight here and there, that is, craving for sensual pleasures, craving for existence, craving for extermination. The craving is called tana. Tana also refers to this thirst that people have inherently for, for things, for pleasure. Uh, the thirst we have to, to get things, to own things, to possess things. Even it says the thirst for life and death and even sleep. So the ultimate goal of a sincere Buddhist is simply freedom from the cycle of suffering that is caused by a craving for things. Now it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I'm not making light of that. It, it does kind of make sense. If I can just be free of these unwholesome desires, even good desires that cause me to go after things, but kind of in a selfish way, if I can get rid of desire, well, then it, it just stands to reason that suffering and struggle should certainly should be erased with that because all that stuff usually comes because of our selfish desire for things. Let's look at Hinduism. Hinduism is almost identical to Buddhism and that it also seeks this kind of nirvana-like state, which is called moksha. Moksha means release. And it's a release from this cycle, this cycle of suffering that comes from birth, you know, living life, suffering, struggling, death, and then rebirth, living life, suffering, struggle, death. So moksha is again that kind of nirvana place of peace and so on, of harmony, of kind of melding in with the universe, that, is, that comes as a release from that struggle that we all go through. And again, I want us to see that that struggle is basically because of our worldly desires. And what keeps a person imprisoned in this cycle of suffering or samsara is called avidya. I hope I pronounced that properly. 
which speaks about ignorance or deception. One author said this about avidya. It is the limitation that, that is natural to humans and is responsible for all the misery of humanity. So notice again that Hinduism also recognizes that a lot of the suffering in the world today is because of this condition that just seems to be natural in human beings and is driven by desire or by, or by craving. It's in all people. In the book called The Essentials of Hinduism, we read these words. A perfect unselfishness and knowledge of the self as the attainment of perfect mental peace and as detachment from worldly desires. Such realization liberates one from samsara and ends the cycle of rebirth. So this idea that mankind needs to find freedom from sin or needs to find freedom from this cycle of struggle, the cycle of samsara, is a very dominant theme in all world religions. And why is that? It's because it's so obvious, right? Uh, no matter who you are, anywhere you look in the world, you realize there's something wrong. There's something fundamentally broken. You know, why can't we just, as the great prophet John Lennon said, you know, I say that tongue-in-cheek, but why can't we just give peace a chance? You know, why can't we have peace? And we are looking for solutions. And today, even in a day where we are supposed to be more enlightened and more intelligent and sophisticated, all those kind of things, never has there been more of a cry for peace. We just need peace around the world. And so basically what the whole world seems to know is that our natural default nature is not to be good. That's not what comes naturally, okay? Just look at a two-year-old child. It doesn't come natural to be good. I know your two-year-old's an exception. He or she is a darling. But there's a reason why their very first word is not mom or dad. It's what? Mine. Mine. That's what they learn to say. That's part of that old nature, that, that broken nature. Now, the Bible has this to say about the human condition in Romans chapter 1. The Bible says that they know God's justice requirements, that those who do these things deserve to die, these great sins. Yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. So what the Bible says is the basic problem for humankind is not that we don't know right from wrong. Our basic problem is that we know what to do, but we still do the opposite anyway. That's basically our problem. We still do what we want. Another verse in the Bible says this. They demonstrate that God's law is actually written in their hearts. For their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them that they are doing right. There's evidence that we know better in most things. We know what we should do or shouldn't do, and yet it's a, a fact of the human race that we tend to still do what serves us best. Now, where we really see the difference between the practices and beliefs of major world religions is in the method that they suggest or use to try to find freedom from this cycle. To find you know, uh, some token of forgiveness or cleansing or, or somehow break this cycle that is caused by sin or caused by samsara. Uh, in the Eastern religions, for example, Hinduism, Buddhism, and so on, what is oftentimes practiced is what is called asceticism. We've, I'm sure you've heard that word before. And asceticism, of course, is the idea that if I abstain from certain indulgences, if there's certain things that I don't do or I somehow subjugate the desires of my body, that I can kind of bring my body into submission. And so I do that sometimes through fastings. I do it through even flogging, uh, kind of a way of, of uh, bringing the body into submission, whatever it may be, uh, 
like I said, certain regimens, meditation, all that kind of stuff. The problem, though, is this, is that even after doing all these things, number one, there's no evidence that it actually works, and number two, there's no assurance in the heart of the person who practices these things that there's really peace with God or there's forgiven or in any way they have been set free. Now, for those of us who've been in church for any length of time, we know that asceticism is not limited to the Eastern religions. Uh, There have been many stories of ascetics down through church history. Why? Because not understanding you can have a relationship with God, again, there's this religious mindset that I've got to do these things to kind of get into God's good favor. Now, there are those, for example, in the New Age movement who claim to be enlightened, but what's very important to understand is that enlightenment is not necessarily the same thing as freedom. It's not the same thing as forgiveness or, or dealing with this old nature that they talk about. In fact, even the Dalai Lama, we all know the Dalai Lama? Seems like a wonderful man, nice big smile, loves everybody. You know, even the Dalai Lama admits that his greatest desire, his greatest craving is that Tibet will one day be free. That's his greatest desire. Well, the problem with that, you can't have desires. So you're going to have to go around a couple more times to get rid of that desire. I don't say that to be facetious, but that even that desire is, is, is considered a degree of samsara. And so enter reincarnation. Enter reincarnation. You see, why does reincarnation exist? Fundamentally because a religion that cannot deliver on its stated promise, what's going to happen? People are going to walk away. And again, that's not limited to other religions. That happens in church as well. Many, many people in droves over the years, you know, in times past, have walked away from the church. Why? Because they were under a teaching system that said that church or Christianity, it's about rituals. It's about rules. It's about things you can't do and all that kind of stuff. And people walk away. Why? Because it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And so if you're in a system that is teaching you asceticism, is teaching you about all these problems you have inside, and here's one of the ways you can try to get rid of it, but it's going to take a long time, if it doesn't work, you're going to walk away. So reincarnation basically delays the inevitable question, which is this. What's the point of doing all these things if it doesn't work? What's the point of all these things that Hinduism and Buddhism, Buddhism, there you go, Hinduism and Buddhism teach If it doesn't work, what's the point of that? Well, here's the catch. You're not supposed to be able to resolve it in this life. That's where reincarnation comes in. You see, it it, it takes such a long process to actually get out of that state of desire, samsara, cravings, all that kind of stuff, that it actually takes many, many, many lifetimes. So, in other words, if it's not really working for you now as a Buddhist or a Hindu, keep trying, but don't get too upset because you've always got another shot. In fact, you may have as many as 80,000 tries at this in all those different lifetimes. But again, the goal is because we've got to think of some way we can actually solve this inborn problem. How can we do this? Well, it's going to happen through many, many lives as I'm reincarnated and hopefully into a better place, a bit more advanced, a bit closer to that state of final freedom. In fact, when you think of it, it's kind of appealing because you know, what if in this life I don't really want to do anything? I can kind of take a mulligan for those who play golf, right? I can just kind of take one off. I'm going to take this life off, and I'll get more serious next life. And again, that's not to speak lightly of it, but that, that factors into them. But my question is this. What if we only get one shot at this life? What if this life that we have right now is really that valuable 
that we have to resolve this issue in this life. This is the only crack we get. Let's shift gears for a few minutes now and just look at some of the major monotheistic religions that actually believe in a personal God. That would be Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. Let's begin with, with Islam. Uh, Islam says that it has about 1.5 billion followers. And of course, Islam will acknowledge the existence of sin and actually has quite extensive lists of what kind of sins those are. But what's different in Islam is this, that there's no hope of actually discovering a power that will keep you free from the desire to sin. No matter how devout you may be, there is really no power available to deal with this inner problem that will actually give you freedom from sin or power over that, no matter how committed you may be. So that's why the theme of Islam, among other things, is constant repentance. Uh, in, in, the, in the Islam, there are some sacred writings. One is the Quran, of course, which is the authority. And then besides that, there's what is called the Hadith. The Hadith are, are man-made traditions that are kind of given authority, but not the same as the Quran. But yet they're also uh, followed by many Muslims, and, and of course, many uh, Imams teach from the Hadiths as well. But in one Hadith, it says this, O people, turn to Allah in repentance and seek His forgiveness. For surely I make repentance a hundred times every day. So according to Islam, you can repent of your sin, and if it's genuine, you can be forgiven by Allah, but only to a point. And you say, what do I mean by that? Only to a point. Islam does not proclaim that you can find freedom from this sin problem, or what religion is called samsara, and it doesn't promise any assurance that even no matter how devout you may be, and all that you do, that you have the knowledge, the assurance that you are forgiven. And that's very, very important. In fact, even Muhammad, the prophet of, of, of Islam, uh, himself said that he does not know whether or not he will go to heaven when he died. He didn't know whether or not Allah would let him into paradise. In fact, I, I don't say this to slight, to slight Islam, but you can be a Muslim who obeys the Quran to the letter. You can do everything that's required of the law according to the Quran. And yet, when you die, have the misfortune of standing before Allah on a day when he's not having a good day. And he can cast you into hell. Even if you did everything, and I don't say that lightly, I don't say that to make fun, but even if you everything perfectly, you still can only hope. Because you could stand before Allah, and, and it's in the sacred writings, that Allah, ha, he, he's kind of whimsical. He can, on a whim, just say, mm, just not feeling it today. Thanks for trying. You know, I mean, that, it, that's how it works. And that's not a whole lot of different than some religious Christians think, by the way. Just thought I'd get that shot in there. Then we come to Judaism. Now, Judaism also requires strict obedience to the laws of God, the commands of God. According to Leviticus chapter 17, it says that animal sacrifices are needed in order to cover your sin until Messiah comes. Here's what the scriptures say. The life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you, the Lord says, to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. In other words, atonement means that a substitute has died in your place. That's what the shedding of the blood means. It's not meant to be gruesome. It's meant to, sh to say to you that the life source of an animal has been drained out and it has died. Why? 
because it has taken your place. Because you owe God your life for the penalty of your sin against Him. So God has provided a means in the Old Testament for the Jews whereby if you sacrifice an animal, I will allow the blood of that animal that has given its life in place of what you deserve, I will allow that blood to cover you until Messiah comes and remedies this situation once and for all. The problem, however, for the Jew is that this practice of animal sacrifice actually ended in A.D. 70 with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So there is no lawful way for a Jew to atone for their sin. Now, a modern Jew will hope, will, will say, and will hope that, well, we can obtain forgiveness and salvation through repentance, through prayer, and through good deeds. But the problem with that is that according to their own scriptures, the Mosaic Law, the law written by Moses, given, to God, uh, given by God to Moses for his people, the law and the requirements of the law hasn't changed. Even though the temple is destroyed and the sacrifices aren't possible like they used to be, God's word hasn't changed. So that's a dilemma a good Jew will find themselves in, that they cannot be right with God unless blood is shed to make atonement. That is, a life given for a life. Now, what is unique in Judaism is that there is a promise in the Scriptures of old, in the prophecies of the Jewish Scriptures, there is the promise that one day God is going to give a new heart to humankind. That there's this covenant, there's this new agreement, this new covenant, this new arrangement the Old Testament Scriptures prophesy that God is going to do to make possible for man to actually deal with this dilemma of sin, samsara, this dilemma of a twisted nature, a sinful nature, an old nature, and the suffering and the struggle that comes out of that. The prophecies of old say God has a plan in store that He's going to deal with that. Ezekiel 36, God says this. Here's the promise. I will give you a what? New heart. And I will put a new spirit in you. I will take away your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you. Why? So that you will be able to follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. And as we always say here at Glad Tidings, God's word, God's decrees are not rules. They are truths that show us how to live life as we obey the wisdom of the Lord. Now, in the New Testament, we have in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 8, verse 8, we have this same promise that is repeated, but God also elaborates on this promise to say, this is for all of mankind. This is not just for the Jews. Man is going to get a new nature. And here's the wonder we've been singing about this morning. God promises, I'm going to do something So that man's going to have a brand new nature. And that new nature is going to give him a new heart. And that new heart is not only going to be able to resist sin, it is actually going to naturally hate sin. And that new heart is naturally going to love God and love holiness and want to have an intimate relationship with God. That's what the promise is. Again, he promises in Jeremiah 31 that through this new agreement, I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, say it with me, and they will be my people. Friends, do we realize as Christians this morning how incredibly radical, phenomenal, awesome that reality is? That billions of people around the world have no concept that even though I believe there is a God up there, there's no way I can know Him. And here we sit in church, right? 
Sunday after Sunday. You know, singing a song or, you know, just something to think about. Well, that brings us to Christianity. Christianity is simply the fulfillment of these promises prophesied in the Jewish scriptures or what we call the Old Testament. The New Testament, or what some would refer to as the Christian scriptures, another word for New Testament is New Covenant. The New Testament is a revelation of God's new arrangement, His new agreement with humankind. Jesus said that this gift of a new heart is called being born again. Born again. Now, I hope nobody's fallen asleep. I'm going to tell you right now, I had three hours sleep last night. I'm not even yawning. I'm that good, okay? I'm not even yawning. So are you with me this morning? Are you staying with me? Okay. When Jesus taught, when he walked the earth and taught, there was a man by the name of Nicodemus who actually was intrigued by not only Jesus' teaching, but he spoke as one who actually knew God. So Nicodemus comes to him at nighttime so that nobody will see him. And basically his dilemma is this. I want to be right with God. I'm following all the laws, all the scriptures that have been given to us, but I don't have that peace. I don't know him like you do. What do I do? And Jesus said this, read it with me, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. A Christian is simply a person who's been born again. It's a person in whom this work of God has occurred. The Bible says in Paul's letter to the Christians in Corinth, he says this, anyone who belongs to Christ has what? Become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life. Has begun. Notice scripture nowhere says that if any man is in Christ, he has found a new religion. Jesus hates religion. Religion cannot produce anything, it is just a burden. That's why he despised the teachings of the religious leaders of his day. He said, You're, you know, you make people twice the children of hell as you are because you just impose all these rules on them that they can't fulfill. It's not going to happen that way, it's impossible. The Apostle Paul adds in his letter to the, to the Christians in Ephesus, he says this, and you also became God's people when you heard what? The true message. The good news that brought you salvation. What do you need salvation from? You need salvation from this heart, this old nature, this samsara, this sin that is selfish, that cannot please God, that knows there is a God but doesn't know how to get to Him, doesn't know how to be right with Him. We need to be saved from that. That's what salvation is. You believed in Christ and God put His stamp of ownership on you. How? By giving you the Holy Spirit that He promised some 600 years before that He talked about in Ezekiel. The Spirit is the guarantee that we shall receive what God has promised His people. And this assures us that God will give, say it with me, complete freedom to those who are His. Do you hear that this morning? That excites me. Now, I'm probably just on adrenaline this morning. I'm going to go home and crash. But it excites me. We have freedom in Christ. We don't have religion. We have freedom in every dimension of our being if we want that freedom and walk with Christ. What that means is that God's promise is not only that He would get us out of trouble. God's promise is that He would bring us into a new life. And that's why Christianity is not just about coming to Jesus, coming to church. Now here's the list of things you can't do. 
No, it's the revelation that these things never satisfied anyway. They don't work anyway. I need something new. I don't need a new religion. I need a power to live a new life. To live the life that my heart is longing for, that my mind knows is out there somehow, but I have no idea, no power in myself to do it. That's the good news. God put Jesus on the cross for you. Listen to what the good news is, summed up in 2 Corinthians 5. For God made Christ Jesus, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could what? Be made right with God through Christ Jesus. Amen? Again, God put your sin on Jesus and then put Jesus to death in your place. So the good news is not only that God has forgiven me, the good news is that God legally is able to forgive me because of what has been done through Jesus. He's not a whimsical God. He can't just say, well, you know, if you, if you do enough good or if you do this or do that, I may or may not. God has made this so clear to us. You are lost. You are without hope. I have a remedy. This is what I have done to solve your sin problem, to solve your samsara problem. I have done this. So if you do this, you will be free and you will know that you are free. And you will live in the confidence of that freedom. For the first time since man turned his back on God, God was able to say through the cross of Jesus Christ that I don't just cover your sins anymore. I am cleansing you of your sin. And now that you are clean, I am going to come and live within you. And you see, it's this newfound intimacy with God. And that's why, hear my heart, Christian people, this morning. That's why if you don't read the Word of God, if you never spend time in the presence of God, you are religious. You don't know God. Because when the Spirit of God comes to live within you, you now have a confidence and a faith rather than condemnation and fear. If you are living in fear, if there's always a question mark over your salvation, or if there's an indifference as to whether or not you're doing the will of God, I would say that you, know, you, you maybe not know Him. I'm just putting that out there. The Bible says this in Corinthians, Surely you know that you are God's temple and, the God, and that God's Spirit lives within you. You see, the evidence of this is seen in the dramatic changes in a person's heart and in their life. And that's why the Bible is so adamant that if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, but you don't live like Jesus or have a desire to live like Jesus, you're probably not a follower. The Bible also says in Galatians, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Read it with me. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And he goes on to say, those who belong to Christ Jesus have done what? Nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. You see, if God's Spirit is living in you, now that you've been forgiven and cleansed and are the temple of the Holy Spirit, if He is living in you, then He has given you power over those old sinful cravings, over that old samsara. But not only has He given you power over the old cravings, here's the proof that He lives within you. He has given you new cravings. You hear me this morning? 
If He truly lives within you, you have new cravings. You crave life. You crave worship. You crave the presence of God. You crave the Word of God. You crave the Spirit of God flowing through you to minister to others around you. You crave opportunities to tell somebody else about Jesus. If He really lives within you, you have these new cravings. It's because the Spirit of God is now that new nature that you have. And so those qualities reveal whether or not you're truly right with God. You see, the beautiful and unique thing about Christianity is that you don't have to try and try and try and try until you get a new heart. You come to Jesus and you begin with a new heart. You see the difference? We ought to be jumping to our feet and praising the Lord. Don't do it right now, I'm busy. But we ought to be doing that, right? If we really realize billions of people around the world are trying and trying and trying to get what we have through accepting Jesus Christ into our lives. God actually gives you a new heart when you turn to Him, and then from that new heart, all the good things you try to produce in the past now begin to flow naturally. And that's what makes Christianity completely different from all religions. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, God saved you by His grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. No one can boast. You know, there's actually people in the church who believe when I came to Jesus, God got a pretty good deal because I'm a pretty good person. I'm pretty special. I mean, they never say that, but really they think that way. You know, because they don't recognize how grave the debt of our sin was. I wasn't that bad of a person. He says, we are God's workmanship. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. Why? So that we can do the good things that He planned for us a long time ago. We can finally begin to do the things that our hearts long to do but we can never find the power to do it. And so even as Christians, we have to be so careful. We have to be careful to resist the temptation to substitute religion for our relationship with God. Hear me, friends. A wholesome life does not replace a spirit-led life. The Christian lifestyle is no substitute for producing the fruit of God's Spirit living within us. Whether you choose just to live wholesomely, wholesome good living, whether you choose a Christian lifestyle, friends, it is still a form of religion. It is not a relationship with God. It is not a life that flows from receiving and responding. Receiving and responding. Receiving and responding as you walk with the Lord. It's not the same thing. In fact, what happens is, even with the best of intentions, if we are not plugging in to the presence of the Lord on a daily basis, where we love the Lord, grow in Him, grow in His Word, but also grow in a humility that recognizes, Lord, You are so amazing. It's all Your grace. I am nothing. It is You. If we don't grow in that, what happens is, we begin to live a lifestyle that brings with a certain degree of smugness. And we actually begin to believe that we're better than other people of other religions. We even think we're better than other Christians of other denominations. It's just religiousness. It's just stinking pride. That's all it is. It is sin because it's not true at all. I've said it many times. Friends, we are no better than anybody. We are just better off because of what Jesus has done for us. We're just better off. And the knowledge of that should humble me and say, Lord, why did you choose me? Why did you let me have this great gift? And when somebody else is going to hell, that's when the Lord says, well, get your act together so they don't go to hell. 
If you really understand the great gift you have, you ought to be consciously looking for people through the course of the week and praying, Lord, help me to have a conversation. Open the door. Help me to share what you've done in my life. Christianity is the only faith claim that claims rather that God has solved this sin problem by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a claim that is proven in the lives of countless people who encounter Jesus every day around the world. Not just people who go to church, but people who actually know that they know Jesus Christ. Did I read Titus? Did I bring that up, Colleen? Okay, let me just read you this quick scripture before we wrap up that really describes beautifully this process of transformation. You see, when I came to the Lord many years ago, I knew there was nothing in me that, that made this happen. I knew it was all of God. And I also knew that there was nothing I could do to produce the kind of fruit the Bible talks about that God requires of those who follow him. Look what Paul says in his letter to Titus. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, and wrong. We were slaves to passions and pleasures of all kinds. We spent our lives in malice and envy. Others hated us, and we hated them. That kind of describe the old life. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior was revealed, he saved us. It was not because of any good deeds that we ourselves had done, but because of his own mercy that he saved us through the Holy Spirit, who gives us new birth and new life by washing us. God poured out the Holy Spirit abundantly on us through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, say it with me, by his grace we might be put right with God and come into possession of the eternal life that we hope for. And we all know people who've received that gift and have that eternal life. And some of you here know, maybe you're, you're back from the last few weeks, you've been visiting, and, and you can say, you know, Pastor, it's true. I, I know there are people in my life who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ, and I've got to tell you, from the depth of my heart, when I honestly look at them, I know they're not the same person they used to be. Something's changed. Something has changed. That's a unique claim for the Christian faith. I want to close with just this one question briefly, just in wrapping up, because oftentimes people will ask the question, if God is so loving, then why in the Christian faith is the road to heaven so narrow? You ever heard that? What they're basically asking is this. If, if people sincerely are following God according to their own conscience, doing the best they can and, and observing all the rituals and stuff, then how can you be so arrogant as to say that, you know, that Jesus is the only one, the only way for that relationship with God? How can you be so narrow? And friends, I say this with humility this morning in case you're asking that question, but the truth is, in my opinion, it would be narrow if I told you how many rules you have to obey to be forgiven. It would be narrow if I told you how many rituals you had to observe in order to some way find peace with God or some way get into heaven when you die. It would be narrow if I said to more than a billion Hindus and, Muslim, uh, Hindus and Buddhists around the world that, you know, especially in the Hindu in this system, that, you know, you're, you're born into this caste system. And for your whole life, you have no hope of getting out of that. And, and on top of that, you have this cosmic debt that you have to pay. And the only way you can pay it is through rebirth after rebirth, life after life after life. 
In my opinion, it would be narrow if I stood here this morning and told you that you have to pray five times a day and you have to face a certain direction. And at least once a year, you have to fast for 40 days. And at least once in your lifetime, you have to make a pilgrimage to a faraway land. And after you've done all of those things, you have no assurance whatsoever when you stand before your God that He will let you into paradise. You see, to me, that would be narrow. But when Jesus says in John chapter 6, I will never turn away anyone who comes to me. When I read that, I don't see narrowness. I see God Himself throwing open the gates of heaven and saying to everyone, to anyone who calls on me, You can know that you're forgiven of your sin. You can know that you have peace with God. You can know the promises of God in your life. Friends, that's not narrowness. That is so great a salvation. Whosoever will may come. You see, the only narrowness in the Christian faith is the fact that I can't just make up my own truth. That's the only narrowness. The narrowness is that if I reject what God has done for me, then the narrowness is in my choice. It's not in the lavishness of what God has provided for me. And so the one truth that every religion shares in common today is the fact that we are not right with God if we choose to live life on our terms. We are broken. We're dysfunctional. We're selfish. Just turn on the TV. Just look around. Just look at yourself sometimes, how you treat people and how selfish you can be. But there's a beautiful promise in the Christian Bible, and this is the good news. And will you read the Scripture with me as we close? Everyone has sinned and is far away from God's saving presence. But by the free gift of God's grace, all are put right with Him through Christ Jesus who sets them free. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't it so simplistic and yet so profound that God has done exactly what needs to be done and even more so that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, will be saved. Would you bow your heads with me? I'm just going to pray a simple prayer. If your heart's desire this morning is to know God. If your heart's desire is to deal with those things inside, those inborn things that, that you know is there. If you don't know the Lord, I don't have to convince you. You know you do or you know you don't. I'm just going to pray this prayer. And if your heart's desire is to open your heart to Jesus Christ, recognize what He has done for you and receive Him as your Savior to deliver you from this constant struggle and suffering in your spirit. He will do that in an instant. The moment you mention His name and reach out to Him, He promises to forgive you of your sin and to come and live within you and begin to give you a power and a presence to experience what Jesus calls an abundant life, an abundant life of overflowing. So we're going to pray this prayer. We're going to invite everybody to pray with me. But if your heart's desire is to open your heart to Jesus, I want you to sincerely pray this with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that you love me. And I thank you that you made a way for me to be forgiven. I thank you for Jesus 
and that He died as my substitute on the cross so that my debt could be paid and I could be forgiven and I could be washed of my sins and You could come and live in me again. Forgive me of my sin. I admit that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. Come into my life right now, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.